So um, three, two, one, go. Andy Cristadina, welcome to the show and thank you so much for having me and for your time. You are the co-founder and CMO of Orbit Media Studios and the proud owner of about a thousand awards that I just saw when I came into your office. <laughs> Um, and I also see your face all over the place, and I think you have an, a fantastic blog with Orbit Media um, and tons of other things that I wrote down. Um, but to give the audience like the quick lowdown, and then we're going to jump right into the conversation that we sure. had before recording, um, what do people need to know about you? I've been doing web design development, SEO, and analytics for 20 years, and I've been doing content strategy, blogging, email marketing, and social media for 12 years. I am a Chicago brand side B2B lead gen marketer, which means I have giant gaps in my knowledge. I know nothing about advertising. I know nothing about Facebook. I'm basically like a B2B, a B2B marketing guy, a lead gen guy, but I've been teaching it for a long time. And so, uh, yeah, I've put out a lot of content. I speak at a lot of conferences and I do my best to share everything I know about every topic I can that I'm relevant for, which is mostly content strategy, SEO, analytics, and now a lot of influencer marketing, which is fun for me too. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you said that you have major knowledge gaps, but I think you underplay or underestimate a little bit the major knowledge um, mountains that you have or the advantages. So I feel like you're one of the the best content marketers in the game who don't only preach, um, but also show and implement and live by the rules himself or themselves. Um, but thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, but before we jump into that part of the aspect, we, we actually started a little conversation uh, before recording about uh, what it's like to be, you know, someone who built a business that's 20 years old and or 20 years strong, better said, that has major revenue, that has a big presence and a network. And then comparing that to other people who design their lifestyle um, or basically design mm -hmm. work around their lifestyle mm -hmm. and, and what that means and kind of how much responsibility uh, weighs on someone who build a business like that. And I think it's actually a fascinating uh, conversation to be had. Uh, my argument was that I'm not always sure if the grass is greener on the other side because mm -hmm. sometimes I have these moments where I'm yeah. like, oh man, like I could just like, travel around the world and uh, be a digital nomad and do all this remotely yeah. and then... But then I talk to some people who do that, and then you see what the other side actually looks like, and then you're like, ah, oh, no, maybe I'm, I'm doing just the right thing. It's a, it's a big question, and it is a, a possible, this possible remorse. There are, we all make decisions. So if your decision is to build a business, then you are deciding to be interdependent on your clients, on your team, and to build this network of interdependence, which if you're successful, you become an important person in that context. Uh, there are people who design businesses and grow businesses that they can easily step back from, which I've not done that well myself. Honestly, a lot of entrepreneurs create jobs for themselves as much as they create a business. So I, um, I'm committed to this and I'm, I'm, I'm here. But yeah, you're right. And it's an awesome option. It's really, really interesting. And I think we all know people who have basically taken on a lifestyle design project where they spend, you know, 12 hours a week scuba diving or they travel and see, you know, a million places or they're on the road or there's, I mean, and I was emailing with a friend of mine, someone we both know, he's a speaker and uh, he's basically just like loves to travel and he's made that dream come true. Choices. We make choices. You commit, right? And and whatever you do, it, you're going, we should avoid having that kind of 
uh, remorse or shiny object syndrome or grass is greener. Uh, I think that the key to happiness is to understand the difference that happiness and pleasure are different. Happiness comes from doing things that are hard. So uh, acquiring a skill, uh, building something that is different, uh, competing in, a, in, you know, and winning and when there's tough competition. So, and that comes from focus. So regardless of what you decide, and even if it's lifestyle and you want to downshift and just kick back, cool, but decide and commit <laughs> and focus on that outcome because otherwise you're not likely to be happy. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm curious why we're talking what would be a lifestyle project that you would take on? Say you, I know like this is, you know, primarily on the table, but just let's just pretend for a second. What would you actually choose or what's your initial hunch? Well, when you unpacked this microphone and that recorder, I was reminded of an idea that I had that I shared with you like five minutes ago that we, that um, we talked about just briefly. I think it would, I, I think that what you're doing now is fascinating and talking to people is just rewarding. And to create a format for content that required both travel and super high-touch face-to-face interaction would be really interesting. So basically, like, get the world's tiniest, most energy-efficient RV and go from city to city, lining up in advance conversations with or conferences where you can meet people, you know, and just talk to and learn from and go deeper in conversations, I do a lot of recording and then a ton of editing uh, with all the people I admire all over the country. So basically like a video blog interview format with experts. I mean, that's an example of one that would just be freaking awesome. Oh, yeah, totally. I would lie if I would say that I haven't thought about it before, but uh, I'm not... There's a lot of risk involved and then other opportunities put me in different directions, <laughs> to be honest. Okay. Yep. But I absolutely agree. Um, and I really like the videos that you recently put out as well. Um, I think they're super valuable and informative. And that made me wonder, you said that um, happiness comes from uh, focus and doing hard things. Um, before we jump into the video stuff, actually, like, what makes you decide to, to start Orbit, Orbit Media 20 years ago? I knew that I was at my best when I was doing things that combined both halves of my brain. I wanted to do art and science. I wanted to do creative and technical. Uh, I didn't necessarily want to be a programmer, but I wanted to create things that were interactive and that were nonlinear and create experiences that, uh, and it was originally Flash, and it was originally like interactive comic books, like weird stuff we did in the 90s. But I wanted to make, I wanted to build things that I knew that I made them, which I didn't get to do at my old job, which was IT recruiting. Fine career, but not ultimately that rewarding or creative. And so it was just a, it was just obsession. I wanted to make websites. And uh, nobody would hire me to do that because I had no resume for it. And it's easier to start a company than it is to find a job. You just have to find one client and you start a company. You know, to find a job, you need to find an employer who's taking a bigger risk than hiring you uh, than a client is in hiring a vendor. So um, that was my plan. And then I got a big shortcut because I partnered with Barrett Lombardo, my friend from high school and roommate from college. And Barrett uh, had already been building websites since the late 90s. Would you do it all over again? I would, although uh, I would probably pursue crazy ideas more in hindsight, right? I should have like tried to maybe create uh, a product or build a tool because so 20 years, think about that. I remember when 
Eventbrite launched and when SurveyMonkey was new and when Facebook came out. And those are things like, not Facebook probably, but like um, like a SurveyMonkey. Like, I think like to be a dominant player in a niche like that, you're going to see massive acquisitions of those companies in this in 2020, I predict. But uh, those those are businesses that any of us really could have built. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you're just like 2003, just like, yeah, I'm going to make the great survey tool, you know, and just make the better make a better one and start building an audience for it. You know, like produce content earlier and deeper, upgrade formats to video and interviews and audio earlier. Um, but yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. There's a million things we all could have done, but no regrets. I have no regrets. Yeah, and but I totally agree, uh, and even think Mailchimp could be so much better. And I'm saying that using Mailchimp myself. Yeah, okay, I'm, right. I'm a customer. I'm paying sure. and all that kind of stuff. Good I think example. There's even more uh, potential. But what do you think is something that today seems to be relatively straightforward to build that could blow up like a Mailchimp in the future? Well, I think that. Uh, the video pla- I don't think they're relatively easy to build. I think there's I don't know of many opportunities like that anymore. Um I there aren't any that I think of where I'm like oh that would definitely be an easier one. Um but uh Zoom mm. and Loom coincidence they rhyme. But those are both video platforms that are finding so Zoom is going to is going to I'm I'm a fan and a, a power user and uh I'm a believer um, Loom is a little earlier and still get, still kind of a VC funded thing, but it, it, it isn't weird. It wouldn't be strange to me if the video voicemail that we do through zoom through, through tools like Loom as, um, uh, becomes a, like a, just a dominant format in the future where instead of typing so much, we're kind of like just hitting record and making our message and that goes out. I mean, it's just, um, that's one I think that will, uh, become even more relevant every day for the next five years. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've been using uh, Loom. I've been using Cloud App, which I think they're both dark competitors. But I've been seeing myself doing that more and more um, mm-hmm. for stuff at work where I walk somebody through something, or even just like almost giving a presentation to um, to people that I work with. And it's not really a presentation; it's more like a walkthrough, but like a mix of. A presentation and walkthrough and a tutorial it's, it's like yeah. something in between uh and i see myself using that more and more or creating little sure. gifts and all that kind of stuff or pitches um, influencer oh, yeah. marketing oh, yeah. sales nice. influencer marketing pitches need that yeah like the other day we have a conference i asked i was reaching out to jay bear amazing speaker i've always wanted him jay would you would you be the opening keynote for our our conference um i'm not going to type that <laughs> yeah it's an important message yeah so I made it as a, a Loom video, which he's done for me. I've seen that. I've seen him use the tool, and uh, asked Jay, made my case, did it with body language and tone of voice in my face, and it looks, you know, sincere and legit. And um, he accepted. So I, I can't say that you know it's because of Loom, but when the stakes are high, don't use text. Upgrade to video. I 100% agree, and I think. Is this is completely undervalued and underestimated? Um, I recently got a pitch from a software vendor that is also in the video space, and they did exactly that. They sent me a ninety-second pitch, mm. but it immediately caught my attention. I'm much more likely to watch it. I'm even much more likely to get on the phone with that person because mm-hmm. now I've seen that person and I've heard that person speak, yep. and it creates a bit more familiarity. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, text is weak. Yeah, I, I'm a writer. I love text, but text is weak. So I started to track how many of my articles I add a video to. And last year it was about one in four. I need to get that number up. 
So uh, you know, anything that you're making that is the least bit complex to explain, which is where we all should be when we create content. Don't create short, simple answers. Answer tough questions. Uh, the right now the video feels like a supplement to the long form article. That might flip. Four or five years from now, you know, the long form article, maybe that's going to be the supplement to the video, which will be the primary format, which people tend to expect when they land on a blog. We're going that way. I very much, I very strongly agree. Um, so speaking about your videos, um, I think, again, like they're great and they're fantastic. What does your workflow look like? Do you write the article first and then create the video, vice versa? And what have you learned? Well, I give... I may not be the easiest to emulate because I give so many presentations. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly giving a presentation to someone at like a conference or an event or something or a training. So I have a ton of different presentations, each section in each presentation. A lot of these have been refined over the years. So it's often just being opportunistic and saying, holy crap, I have this really laid out already in a deck. So I just need to make the video version of this because I've it's not it's not a publicly available inside of PowerPoint sitting on my computer. Mm -hmm. So it's like that basic content marketing idea of freeing your content and putting going inside out and publishing stuff and getting things off your hard drive onto the internet. That's basically what great content marketers should all be doing, right? It's on your hard drive, get it on the internet. So that's a big part of it. Also, um, I look for opportunities. This one that you may have seen. Uh, I had the idea to do a screencast recording of myself writing an article. Yeah. And it was a four-hour process that I recorded, and then it was a search-optimized article. And then weeks later, after I after the article began to rank, I went back and turned that video into a tutorial that shows super high-speed. It's a super high-speed video that shows you how to write a high-ranking article every single step. So that was just an example of where you just want to 10x other people's content. A lot of people write articles about how to rank. This was a video that showed step-by-step step everything that was required to create the article. And at the end, you can see the ranking. Yeah. So that was um, just more forethought. Just I'm going to record myself this time. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, I saw it went pretty viral and a lot of people were like loving it and citing it. So I think you created a big advantage of yourself because if you had to put all of them to text or into writing, it probably wouldn't have been as successful. But now you have a new format that is not as crowded as text mm -hmm. and you can stand out. You might get a video featured snippet. Like you have that audience from YouTube, right? I think, yeah, elevating text into video is something that's probably was a big trend last year already. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But I still don't see enough people doing it. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, Jeff Julian says that basically just people are embarrassed to see themselves on camera. Yeah. And he's right. I think that's the main reason. It's just yeah. a psychological reason. Um, for search, you and I both love search in search. It's like two bites at the apple because I've written articles that do not rank, but the video that went with the article does. So it's like how to share access to Google analytics. Damn, I'm competing with Google. That's a Google related phrase, you know, hard to rank, but the video shows up in this carousel inside the search results page. Like it, it's right there. Like my, it's a, almost a better way to rank. Yeah. I'm not getting traffic from it. The video is on YouTube and the click takes you to YouTube. But you can see my face in Google search results for the target phrase. Like, so uh, I can't beat Google for the Google phrase, but I but the but Google's not making a video for this. I am. Yes, and at the end of the day, traffic is only means to an end. Yeah. So you might accomplish that same means with with YouTube. It just doesn't factor into the same easy to measure metrics on your site 
but I mean, you can actually get pretty good analytics on, on YouTube, I think. I think it's pretty decent, at least enough for you to optimize and understand what's happening. I need to learn from you on that topic. I'm I'm overvaluing visits. I I'm sure um, you're right. There's more to life than clicks, and I'm also not paying any. I'm paying almost no attention to to uh, any kind of YouTube analytics. I should look. And there's a cool uh, data studio uh, integration where you can funnel it all together into a nice dashboard. Um, but there's still some challenges when it comes to actually measuring what um, traffic on your video does on your site because it gets hairy when you embed that video on your site and then have to distinguish between people watching that video while they're on YouTube uh, versus while they're on your site. I think that's what they haven't made as transparent yet. Yeah, because that all increments the total views, yeah. even if the person wasn't on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, one thing I am doing is I, I, I use the uh, event tracking set up through Google Tag Manager to be able to track video views. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people watch videos on my website on an article uh, i have a simple segment in google analytics that shows me if the difference between video viewers and non-video viewers and it's like the conversion rates are two and a half times higher Hmm. the bounce rates are go down by a half there's like major engagement lift from these articles i could show you um uh exactly how i tracked it and and the reports but people who watch videos on a page are spending more time seeing more pages, bouncing at lower rates, and converting into subscribers at much higher rates. Wow. There's an article about that on your blog, I'm sure. I think I wrote that one. Um, I'll, I'll find it for you. Yeah, no worries. I'll add it to show notes, but yeah. that, I'll, I'll certainly look into that. Uh, it's, for me, it's something that I expect to see, but it's great to see that validated by data. Mm-hmm. So you create a ton of content there's either a clone sitting in the room next door or you're an absolute machine. And I vote for the latter. How do you do it? What's your routine? What's your like system? Well, I have, uh, I've been on the same publishing calendar for the last maybe, maybe uh, 10 years where it's an article every other week and then probably five or eight times a year, I'll write a guest post for someone. I'm a columnist here and there. So it's really, uh, but they're long form articles. So a lot of these are two and three and 4,000 words. So it's one long-form article, one in four of them has a video that goes with it, but it's every other week. So the key for me is to have lots of partially written articles, lots of ideas collected, lots of places to capture anything new that contributes to one of those ideas. So there's probably 50 ideas captured and probably eight articles that are growing in depth and information at any given time. When one of these gets close enough to being a completed article, then I drop everything and focus on it and I'll spend the four to six hours to make it into an article. But it's really just a matter of idea capture and then slowly building these up. So I could show you the entire process. I have a presentation where I show the mechanism for the the collection, but um, content marketers are collectors. So if you have a way to collect all these things and to keep them all growing so you see something, add it to an article. You found a statistic, add it to an article. You met someone, you heard a good quote, you found a, a diagram. You're always adding these things to articles. So it's not as if I have to sit down and, and cut from, a, you know, work from a blank slate. There, uh, By the time I, I sit down to really work on a piece, uh, the research has been building for a year, a long time. So I think that has a lot to do with uh, the productivity is that 
Um, it's like a 24 seven thing. We're always thinking about these topics and you have a mechanism for building up, build, building many articles very gradually over very long periods of time. Yeah. I, I do exactly the same thing. What tool do you use for that? Well, how do, where do you capture your ideas? There's a spreadsheet in Google Docs. It's a Google Sheet that has all of these article ideas. When I have a new idea for an article, I add it to that list. Then over on the the column next to that in the spreadsheet, there's a uh, if something starts to really get bigger, then I open up my content template and rename it and put the link to that template in the spreadsheet. Mm. So now I have those articles have like two or three or four ideas. Wow, that's a cool piece of research. That's a weird statistic. Look at this funny picture. You like you put those into the template. So there's you know half a dozen or ten or so that have these 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 templates that are slowly building. So it's basically just all Google Docs. And how off how much time a week do you dedicate to writing? Uh, you know, I hate to say it. I'm not good at this. Uh, we well, like we started at the top. I'm not like the lifestyle design guy. I'm, I don't have a great work life balance. I have two little kids, and uh, so I have very little time for any kind of R and R. But um, every other weekend, I have to get an article done by that Monday. So I'll probably uh, total per week on content creation. It might be five to six hours. It's not spread out over that week though, because there'll be weekends where I'll just work for, I'll spend, you know, early, early mornings, um, four and a half hours, six hours between a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, maybe an hour at night here and there, just finding the time that I can to go really to do deep work. Have you read deep work yet? Yeah, I have. Good oh, book. Fantastic. Oh, absolutely Good fantastic. Book. Cal yeah. Newport. And uh, he has, I think, two or three other books out there that I still have yet to read. Why am I not surprised though, that you've read Deep Work? You're like a performance-driven marketer. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm not. I, I. I sort of knew that you would have read that one. That's uh, yeah. I, thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, I follow his blog and listen to some of his podcasts. I don't. I'm not able yet. No, I don't push myself enough to follow all of his rules or all of his kind of suggestions, but. It made a major difference because I, I'm that person that um, I wouldn't say gets easily distracted, but has to shield everything off to mm -hmm. really focus. But then once when I get into flow, it just comes. Yeah. Well, that's what you know. I, I saw you in the hallway. You said, "How are you doing?" I said, "I'm doing well." I had a focused morning and a distracted afternoon. Yeah. What I was thinking was, I did deep work before lunch, and I've done shallow work after lunch. So if nothing else, it, it, it makes you aware of whether or not you, you're in deep work mode or shallow work mode. And we all have shallow work and it's fine to do shallow work, right? Like I'll have time set aside for social media and it's just lots of small messages and highs and thank yous and promotion. But uh, I, I fully realize that, that I'm in shallow work mode at that time and that to really do the, main, the big things I need to do, I need to have multi-hour chunks of time yeah. to go deep. 100% and same here and the thing is it goes even further I would even say that if I don't get a certain amount of deep work in a week and a day done I actually become very unhappy and very mm. unrestful yeah I feel the same way <laughs> it's stressful yeah totally I think that that's almost what stress is is yeah. spending too much time in shallow work and you know that yeah. you have priorities that haven't been addressed 100% and I've also adopted um, getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. uh, really enjoy that one uh, <laughs> and just getting everything out of your mind. And I feel like that and deep work just go perfectly hand in hand. Um, and probably I think one reason is for why it kind of um, unsettles me if I don't get the work done 
is because I kind of lose my feeling for my productivity. And then new tasks come in or new projects, and I'm not sure if I can get them done or not. And then mm-hmm. it just adds up and piles up and the computer crashes, right? So, um, but I feel like, you know, with all your output, it you get high quality deep work done. Yeah. How, where do you think that comes from? I mean, I'm not, this is not going to be a, like a, like a therapist session, but if you go back into your life, maybe in the early beginnings or your student years, like, was that always a theme where like always a, a great student and overachiever? Is that something you have learned? Did you have like a, a breakthrough moment? No, I was a bad student. I was, uh, I was a, a college partier, although I took a challenging degree. I got a Mandarin degree and then went and lived in China. Wow. I just, I, um, I think I've been motivated to do things that were, where the success was evident. It's like Chinese. If I know this language, I'll be able to prove to myself that I learned something. Wow. If you can talk to someone in Chinese, then you know Chinese. It's not like a history degree. Yeah. Like learn a hard skill. Uh, digital was the same for me. I wanted to make something that I could point to that thing and know that I made it. So it was partly a drive just to have, um, visible or measurable outcomes. Um, I love the exploration of knowledge, but I also want to do something that was creative. Yeah, Language, I think, was partly creative for me, and you're obviously multilingual. But um, the writing and speaking is creative. You know, that's it. So I think it was always partly a drive to be creative. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, so I'm 47. So it wasn't until much later in life when I got really motivated to perform, to have, to have like professional goals. Yeah. I was always just just pursuing interests, which I loved. And you know, anyone listening that is in their twenties or thirties or whatever age that is still just pursuing interests, awesome. That's there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Oh yeah. And there's plenty of time to knuckle down and bang out hardcore professional goals if that's what you choose to do later on. Yeah, it's funny. You, I feel like you and I were were cut from the same tree. <laughs> to keep the analogy going, but yeah, same here. Uh, was a creative. I was uh, and I was not a good student. I was okay, um, but yeah, college partier like crazy. Mm-hmm. I was DJing back then. I was writing music <laughs> like it's creative aspect. For you. Everything that comes with it. It was smoking. I was drinking and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, changed my lifestyle. It was the same thing. Yeah, and I, I but I agree. Like following interests majorly important because it will eventually set you on the right path that's creative though that being a dj that's creative yeah yeah so you did you always have the creative drive or did you work another other medium yeah i think it came pretty early on i learned uh piano and bass um and yes i always had a creative drive and it kind of it was also an outlet for me uh especially when i had like harder times in life i always kind of diverted into creativity now it's a lot of uh, working out and sports so there's something there but i still have that creative need or or need to express creativity in a certain way mm. um, so i know that you're relatively um they were coming up on time but do you have time for one or two more questions of course yeah. Okay? yeah i even have a question for you if we have time please absolutely go for it do you think so i think that there's people who are motivated by the competitive aspect of seo and when you said sports it reminded me of that yeah there's other people who i think are motivated by the creative aspects in seo and you maybe are do you think that the what traits lead people to be good at search is it pure? I mean, I, I, I think that there's, there's SEOs that are mostly just competitive and not necessarily focused on content quality. They care more about this, the rankings. Then there's SEOs that are just very empathetic and they want to help someone and they think that's a good way to connect with an audience. Or is it just really about making stuff? What, which of your traits do you think makes you a good SEO? 
I think curiosity is one of the traits that you can't get around. I think you can, without curiosity, you can be a great SEO for a certain amount of time and then you just can't keep up with the trends mm. anymore. I feel like you have to constantly not reinvent the wheel, but constantly question what's out there, what's happening, and also yourself. And I think that's where humbleness, a certain humbleness is important. Creativity, I agree. Um, even though I have to say, I don't think it's a must-have. I think it's a nice-to-have. I don't mm. think it's a must-have. I know insanely analytical people. And I've also learned that when those people meet insanely creative people and they they allow themselves to work together, like amazing stuff can happen. Mm. Um, and I don't know where I fall on that spectrum because I actually am very competitive. Mm. Um, but weirdly, like when I know I have no chance... I'm not competitive at all. Like if I, you know, like I'm not street racing with a Ford Prius against a Ferrari. Like, yeah, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like that, not that kind of obsessive competitor, but I am actually deeply competitive. But that's not why I do it, to be honest. I, I share this, like like you, I share the same thirst for knowledge mm. and storing knowledge and organizing knowledge and kind of, you know, building a corpus of knowledge, mm -hmm. um, but also curiosity and questions. So I, I also like personality tests and, yeah. the, you know, they always come back and saying like um, strategic, um, like learner, um, creative, analytical. So it's like a very weird, almost like op opposite of the spectrum type of uh, mix. But yeah, to, to kind of recap that, I think curiosity, a certain humbleness, Creativity is a nice to have, and then some sort of drive, whether it's yeah. the drive to just beat others or the drive to make something or the drive to achieve a goal. Like, that's I think that's kind of where I'm at. I am. Um, I don't know if you heard of the Enneagram, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm a three, um, which is um, the achiever, and which means that I'm just driven to achieve goals, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, just strong motivation, yeah, is is an important trait. That's an interesting answer. I, I uh, definitely curiosity. I, I it gave super short interviews of a bunch of people. There were speakers at MozCon, and uh, that that answer came up a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's the and there again it sounds like that Venn diagram overlap between creative and analytical. Yeah, yeah. Art, art and science. Humility is a good point too because uh, we will. It's unknowable. We will never know the rules of the game. You can't know it. You have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. You have to be comfortable with incomplete knowledge. You have to be fine with, uh, it, it, you know, people who, sometimes people say, like, I, I did this. Did I do it the right way? It's <laughs> a weird question. Yeah. I did this SEO thing. Did I do it right? It's not like a right way. I never really use that word. There's not like a correct way to do seo is there i don't think of it that way true no i 100 agree i think there are certain way uh, certain situations where you can say this is the wrong approach right like there's not a user first approach or there's not index with four machines or whatever this is kind see. of binary yep. but most of the time i 100 agree and even more so i think some of the best seos do things that others never did or never tried or never dared to question mm -hmm. so yeah. what where where do you what do you think you've hired probably 100 people in your life maybe, maybe more yeah like what are the traits that you saw that made seos and maybe marketers in general successful versus the ones that were not successful well what we look for here is of course soft skills we're a service company so we're looking for people that can relate you know build confidence in a meeting it's people that just work well with people people that are empathetic people that care um, people that aren't going to do something inconsiderate or, you know, I mean, make 
you know, basically strong interpersonal skills are really, really important because web development is super high touch and we're just in meetings with people all day, every day. Right. Almost everybody is. Some of the developers, maybe not, but almost everybody else is. Um, past that, there's just a, uh, we talked about deep work. I like to work with people who are efficient with their time, who are deliberate with how they expend energy and invest their, invest their, uh, you know, where they put their effort. Um, I worry about people that I see going down a path that is going to be, um, you know, where work might have to be redone or people that are doing something that doesn't, that's unnecessary or repeating a task that, you know, or people that will just blindly follow a procedure. Scare me. Those are terrifying people to have on your team. Just like, I'm just going to do this. I, I did this because that's how we do it. I hate that answer. <laughs> yeah. I understand that there, that companies make margin by consistent delivery, but you, you must be skeptical of your approach in that context because it, 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 there's not a one-size-fits-all way to do anything in digital. So uh, I think that it's not – most people who are not doing SEO, uh, the skills of creative and technical overlap here a lot, but there are full-time programmers and full-time designers. So not everybody here is a jack-of-all-traits. That's perfectly normal. But everybody here has to be a good human, easy to get along with, empathetic, generous, curious, uh, kind. Yeah. These are the deal breakers and critical skills. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Um, there's a saying that the the worst reason to do something is because it was always done that way. Oh. And the second worst is because it was never done before. <laughs> it's an interesting, you know, like I think. Oh, that's funny. Both can be true in some Yeah, ways, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I agree. I think that uh, collaborative aspect is becoming so much more important because SEO becomes more and more discipline that relies on other people. Mm -hmm. I see that right now. Like at Enterprise, you're not going to be a person that can do SEO all by themselves. You're going to rely on developers and designers sure. and product and engineering and all that fun stuff. So uh, yeah, I think... And you know, like I also think that these this mix of traits might change in the future, right? Mm. I think I think that curiosity aspect is is kind of an evergreen thing that you always need to have. Yeah. But then I wonder, like, is there going to be time when, you know, either SEO becomes so broad that there will not be people that do SEO, but they might, I'm not going to say SEO is dying, right? Yeah. But I think it could diversify so much that, you know, then all of a sudden you have like designers that are specialized in SEO. Like hmm. they take it up as an additional skill. And uh, I, I heard this first from Mike King who said that SEO is actually like a meta thing. Like there's no, like nobody does does SEO, right? Oh, you yeah, put yeah. SEO on top of other things, on top of right. writing, and on top of um, design and, and, and development. And so I wonder if at some point, it just gets too deep so that not a single person can do this anymore, but it's going to be more like a, a group of specialists come together. Just a wild theory. I, I like that thinking. <laughs> SEO is sort of an outcome. It's not a specific action. Yeah. There isn't yeah. like an SEO. I'm not like doing an SEO thing. Yeah. Like, when am I doing SEO? If I reach out to a contributor for a quote, am I doing SEO? Well, I might have chosen that contributor because they write for an authoritative blog and I want to later con collaborate with them and maybe be part of their content over there. But if you saw me make it, you know, if you watched an SEO work for four hours, and there's a huge range of people that do this, there's outreach managers, there's copywriters, there's technical SEOs, there's people doing analytics. But, I, but one of my problems with this business is that the buyer of SEO services is like the lowest information buyer in digital. <laughs> they don't know what they're buying. Yeah. What, is, what do you think that person's going to do for you tomorrow? 
let's say you have a $10,000 a month budget and you hire an SEO to, and to put in that kind of effort. What are they going to do for you? What do you, you're looking for the outcome, but what actions do you think would lead to that outcome? And the fact that clients are willing, are seem to be like uninterested in learning what that vendor or partner is doing for them is why this industry gets away with <laughs> those shady characters. I think that's, that that's, that's uh, one of the issues that I have with this, but I definitely agree that it's a layer on top of many other activities. But I, I I wholeheartedly agree with you. And to be selfish and honest and candid in this moment, I don't want it to be like that. I, I want it to be something that a single person can do or at least initiate because I love the intersection of art and science. Yeah. I, I don't, I would have to stretch my mind to come up with a comparable job or a comparable, uh, yeah. you know, field of work. I can't think of anything else. I mean, I never thought about it, but, this is a poorly considered answer. Sales is a bit like SEO yeah. because a salesperson is going to spend part of their time networking. They're going to spend part of their time doing outreach. They're going to spend part of their time sharpening their message. They're going to spend part of their time in meetings, part of their time in writing, part of their time, um, you know, working on a proposal, doing technical kind of legal things. And the outcome is revenue. So I think that maybe if there's any, maybe the closest industry to to SEO in its scope and range and types of, you know, diversity of activity, it might just be straight sales because those people are using, doing all kinds of different things. You know, there's a billion different kinds of salespeople selling a million different kinds of things. Just like there's a ton of different types of SEOs promoting tons of different types of content, answers, formats, that kind of thing. Wow. I've never thought about it that way. Do you like sales? Uh, I do like sales. I do like sales because sales nowadays for us and and a lot of businesses is mostly teaching. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you create enough demand, you're not hungry all the time, which is makes it kind of more enjoyable. You know, it's not like I'm going to starve if I don't get this project. So you're disqualifying your prospects a lot. Mm -hmm. We create so much demand and so many leads that sales for us is kind of like a uh, I don't know if you want to hire us. Uh, we were available, but you know, you make sure that you think this way before you think that we're a good partner. So it's um, uh, it's fun to do it for us because we build a lot of trust. Because we're not we're not doing any outbound promotion or sales or outreach or cold calls. Uh, we're just responding to leads and helping people consider us as an option, which is basically the same thing as teaching, which is my favorite thing to do. Wow. I couldn't imagine a better way to close this conversation, even though I, I have to say I close with a with a sad eye. But thanks for being so generous with your time, Andy. Uh, you gave me so much to think about. Where can people find and follow you? Orbitmedia.com slash blog. I write an article there every two weeks. I also, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter are probably my best networks. Anyone is welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. And uh, anyone is welcome to reach out to me anytime, ask me any question, I'll help however I can. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm obviously going to link to all of that in the show notes. I would appreciate if you like this video or if you give me five stars on uh, iTunes or on uh, Spotify or wherever the heck you listen. Thanks so much for tuning in and until next time. Thanks, Kevin.